seated, please. Well, our text this morning is Luke 8, verses 41 to 48. You, you may have heard of a man named Sir James Simpson. He was uh, knighted in his, uh, in his 50s for his work uh, in, uh, in medicine, uh, in the area of uh, anesthetics. He discovered the usefulness and suitability of uh, chloroform and uh, did a great deal to advance the study of gynecology. And, and uh, it's particularly the uh, perhaps his work with chloroform that was kind of the standout area for him. He, uh, he attended uh, Queen Victoria at the birth of one of her children, and uh, they used, I think for the first time, chloroform as an anesthetic. And uh, so he was quite a man and uh, quite a standout in the history of medicine. And um, interestingly enough, when he had become famous and was was asked the question what uh, he felt his greatest discovery had been. Uh, he said this, he said, my most valuable discovery was when I discovered myself a sinner and that Jesus Christ is my savior. So the man at the peak of his academic and professional career, think of people today who are standouts in various areas and imagine them being interviewed on CNN and asked about their greatest discovery. Well, he's asked that question and I repeat his response. My most valuable discovery was when I discovered myself a sinner and that Jesus Christ was my savior. And I believe that um, had this woman of whom we read in verses one to 48, had she been asked the same question, her response would have been the same. My most valuable day, my most significant day was the day when I discovered myself a sinner and Jesus Christ, my Savior. She would have said that greater than being healed of her physical affliction was being healed of her spiritual condition. She would have said that being healed in her body was really nothing compared to being healed in her soul. In verse 48, Jesus says to her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. The moment before that, she had been called forward and she had declared in front of everybody what she had done, why she had done it, why she touched him, and that she had been healed completely. She had been made well. She had been immediately healed. And uh, in verse 48, Jesus changes the word and he says, your faith has saved you. He used the word that in the New Testament is usually translated saved. He doesn't say your faith has healed you. He says your faith has saved you. And 
that's what Luke wants us to know. That's what his book is all about. He wants us to know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. He wants us to know when we think about Jesus, we should sing this. A wonderful Savior is Jesus my Lord. A wonderful Savior is He. And when you think about your own situation, the day that you discovered yourself a a sinner, the day that it dawned upon you by grace that you were a sinner destined for judgment, the day that it became clear to you that Jesus was the Savior, and the day that by grace you went to Him for salvation, that's the greatest day of your life. Bar none. Well, we want to think about this this moment, this day in the life of this woman when she discovered herself a sinner and discovered Jesus, her Savior. And I want to speak to you, first of all, about the suffering sinner. In verses 42 and 43, we see something of a description of her situation. And so we read that as Jesus went, there was a woman that came to him who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. And and though she had spent all her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. Now, we really don't know the details of her condition, and I'm not interested at all uh, in speculating, but we do know that she was a suffering sinner. And I'm not blaming her condition on any particular sin. I'm simply saying that sinners in this world suffer. Sinners in a fallen world suffer. Sinners living life in a fallen world as part of a fallen race, they suffer and they suffer immensely. And she was a a suffering sinner. She was hurting. Just because people are guilty sinners in the hands of an angry God, it doesn't mean our hearts should not break when they suffer immensely as a consequence of fallenness and sometimes as a consequence of particular sins. And when we see them, we don't say, well, now that's your bed, you may lie in it. We, well, we weep for them. Our hearts break for them. The Bible says in Proverbs 13, 15, the way of the transgressor is hard. You know, sometimes you look at, at, at unbelievers and you see their difficult lives. Sometimes you see that the difficult, sinful life they've lived, it shows on their face. It shows on the way they carry themselves. It's been hard. And you think of that verse and you say, yes, indeed, the way of the transgressor is hard. Another translation puts it in this way. The way of the treacherous is their ruin. Fallen sinners suffer in this world. Proverbs 13, 21 says, disaster pursues sinners. Well, that's the truth. And this poor woman's disastrous condition It should make us weep. Warren Wearsby says this woman had a hidden need, a burden she had lived with for 12 long years. It affected her physically and made her life difficult. It also affected her spiritually because her hemorrhage made her ceremonially defiled and unable to participate in the religious life of the nation. 
She was defiled, destitute, discouraged, and desperate. It's a terrible situation for her. And she's struggling immensely. Another writer says, besides the physical problem and the weakness that resulted were a, a myriad of other issues. The word myriad means that just there's an awful lot of issues. It's not just one situation that made it difficult, not just one difficulty to deal with, but a massive amount of, of issues and struggles that she had. It was not only the bleeding itself that concerned her, but the stigma that was attached. Leviticus 15 taught that a woman with a flow of blood was unclean. Not only was she unclean herself, but anyone she touched was unclean. Any bed on which she lay was defiled. Leviticus 15, 22 says that whoever touches anything she sits on must wash his clothes and bathe with water, and, and he will be unclean until evening. This meant that she was, think about the the practical life consequences for her. This meant that she was unlikely to receive any invitation to meals or parties. You wouldn't invite her to lunch today. And she had no social contact with anyone. She was barred even from attending temple and synagogue. And so life was very difficult and there was tremendous suffering for this woman. And so she was hurting. And she was also helpless. Verse 43 says that she had spent her living, she'd spent all her living, that is, this, her substance, her money, all she had in this world. Perhaps she had been rich, but all had been spent on doctors. And Mark says she had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And so her resources were at an end, and she was not only not better, but she was now worse. And she had tried everything. And she had been to all the doctors. And she had taken all the treatments. And she had tried all the medicines. And nothing had worked, and, and no one could help. And at the end of it, it was worse than when she had started. There's a, a Jewish religious book from those early years and, and later even then when the Lord Jesus was around. And, and they have prescribed treatments for her condition. And um, maybe, maybe she tried some of these. I don't know. But uh, just listen to this. I've updated some of the language but first of all, they, they instruct that what you should do if you're a physician, do this for her. Take the leaves of a crocus and crush it into wine. Let her drink it. And then you say to her, when she's drunk that, you say to her, after she's finished that, you say to her, arise from your flux. That is, arise because you've been healed. You've been freed. You say that. And then they go on, they say, well, if that doesn't work, Take three pints of onions, boil them in wine, and give them to her. And once she's drunk that, say, arise from your flux. She'll be healed. And then, if that doesn't work, 
tell her to stand where two roads meet. Let her hold a cup of wine in her hand and let someone come up behind her and frighten her. And then say, arise from your flocks. That should do it. I don't know how many of these remedies she tried. But as I say, Mark says uh, that she had suffered much under many physicians. There were quacks in those days, to be sure. So she was hurting and she was helpless. There was, n- there was no one who could help. She tried it all, and as a result, she was, she was hopeless. Verse 6 says that uh, uh, she could not be healed by anyone. Verse uh, 46. Yeah, no, uh, one of the other Gospels says she could not be helped by anyone. There was no one to turn to, no one who could help. There was no place she could run. There was no recourse that was set before her. She was without hope in this particular situation. See, she was desperate. That reminds us, it reminded me of of Genesis 41 and verse 57, where we're told that all the earth, there was a famine, and all the earth was suffering under the famine, and they all came, all the earth came to Egypt and to Joseph to buy grain because the famine was severe over all the earth. And so here were people, all the earth, and they were without hope. There was nowhere they could go. There was no one they could turn to to give them food to sustain them and to save them physically. So they go to Egypt, and they go to Joseph, who's a picture of Jesus. And from Joseph, they can get food because Joseph could open the storehouse and Joseph could supply them with food and Joseph could save them. There was nowhere else to go. No one else can help. They can get food from Joseph. And you see, this woman is hurting and helpless and she's hopeless And we know that um, that that's a picture of of us. That's a picture of you. That's what you're like if you're not a Christian, you see. You're just like this woman. J.C. Ryle says, Let us see in the case of this woman here described a striking picture of the condition of many souls. And as I say, maybe maybe this is you this morning. Maybe you're listening here in this room. But you see yourself in the mirror that this woman supplies. Or maybe you're listening on the internet and, you know, you you see yourself as well in this woman. And Ryle says, these people, these hopeless, helpless, hurting sinners... They've gone all the round of all the forms of religion and they have wearied themselves. I mean, you've tried everything. It's all been in vain and peace of conscience seems as far off as ever. The wound within is a fretting and intractable sore which 
nothing can heal, and you're still wretched, and you're still unhappy, and you're still thoroughly discontented, and in short, you are just like this woman, and there seems to be no help for you, and there seems to be nothing that can can meet the need of your soul, nothing that can give you rest in the depths of your being. You've tried any number of things, and they've counseled you in the world, try this and try that. This is what the answer is. And you've tried it, and you've found that it has not helped in any way, shape, or form, and you find yourself just as empty as you did before, just as guilty as you were before, just as unhappy as you've ever been. And so this woman is, well, she's like you. And I want you to note right away that her answer was the Lord Jesus. She came to him and he saved her. He didn't just heal her. I mean, he saved her. He'll do the same for you. There's no question about that at all. Well, we see this this suffering sinner. That's the first thing. And I want to give you a lesson about this. A lesson for all of us. And I want you to see the tenderness and the compassion of the Lord Jesus Christ for this woman, for for suffering sinners. I mean, why does he insist that she come forward and make a declaration about the fact that she touched him and now she's been healed? Well, there are any number of reasons, but certainly he wants everyone to know that this isolated woman, this woman who has been marginalized, according to... Biblical principle and command, to be sure, but she is suffering and she is isolated and she is marginalized and she's unclean. What a difficult situation she's in, but he wants them to know that she is now clean. She's no longer to be marginalized and she's no longer unclean. She's clean now and she can come into your homes. And she can sit down at your table. And she can go freely amongst you. At synagogue. And at the temple. I want you to know that. I've cleansed her. Usually, when someone unclean touches some person, they always contaminate that person. But Jesus is in a category by himself. When you touch Jesus, he cleanses you. That's what's happened. You touch the Lord Jesus. You believe in the Lord Jesus. You'll be saved. You see. But you see, the Lord Jesus is so kind to her and so compassionate. And he says to her daughter. He never calls anyone else daughter in the New Testament, in the Gospels. In none of the other Gospels does any other woman hear this word. But he says to her, he says to her daughter. Daughter. Your faith has made you well. Oh, it's a term of endearment. It's a term of tenderness. It's a term of affection. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine the Lord Jesus talking to you if you're a, a lady, a daughter? How extraordinary that must have been. And he says, go in peace. Go in peace. Oh, I know. It's been a road of anxiety. It's been a road of trouble. It's been a road, a pathway of turmoil. But now you can go and you go in peace. It's, oh, it's full of compassion. We want to be like that, folks. We want to be full of tenderness and compassion and mercy to unbelievers. 
you know, there's an American pastor. There's a famous guy. I told you his name, you'd know him. And um, he publicly refers to trans people as what's-its. You know, did you talk to that what's-it? I'm debating a what's-it. Well, you know, it seems to me that is so profoundly contrary to the, the kindness and the compassion of our Lord Jesus Christ. Oh, the Lord Jesus, you see, they would say, oh, you guys are soft on sin. You just want to be all about love. That's nonsense. The Lord Jesus is what he calls sin, sin, doesn't he? Oh, but uh, he's not cold and nasty and angry and unpleasant. Oh, he's kind. He's gracious. He's loving. So, you see, we, we, we need to follow our master, not some of his servants. And we want to let our hearts bleed for the lost. Even the persecutors, as I said earlier, let our hearts bleed. Let our eyes weep. And let our souls just cry out to God for the lost, even those, those terrible people. It's only grace that sets us apart from them. How dare we, how dare we respond with coldness and arrogance and harshness? Who are we? Who on earth are we to treat lost sinners like that? God, keep us from that kind of thing. Let us follow the master. Well, you see, that's the first thing. The second thing is uh, the believing touch. Verse 48, daughter, your faith has saved you. Your faith has saved you. The Lord Jesus makes it clear that the reason she's healed, faith. He makes it clear that the reason there's physical and spiritual healing is faith, not works. It's the touch of faith. That's the thing. It's the looking to Jesus. That's the thing. It's the leaning upon Jesus. That's the thing. It's the entrusting of yourself to Jesus. That's the thing. It's faith. The believing touch. Let me tell you first of all about the inevitable attitude of the human heart. The inevitable attitude of the human heart. People gravitate towards works. That's the first thing and the last thing they think of. If there is a heaven, they want to earn it, not receive it. Even when they're faced with death, even when death looms, they want to pin their hopes on their works. They want to pin their hopes on what they think has been a pretty good life. There's a man by the name of, uh, of Benjamin Guggenheim. He's, uh, you know perhaps about the Guggenheim Museum. Uh, that's his family that founded that. And he's sailing on the Titanic uh, across back to America. And uh, he's, he's um, with his, uh, he had a, uh, a valet personal valet, and um, while the ship hits the iceberg and 
and things begin to get really difficult and they begin to realize the ship's going down and uh, uh, he and his valet give up their place in the lifeboats, noble thing to do, and, and they prepare to go down with the ship and he and his valet go down to their, their cabin um, and uh, put on their evening clothes, their evening dress and, and, their best cl- and they go back upstairs and, and it's said that the last sight of them is he and his valet kind of sitting there on the deck uh, just with a glass of wine. Um, and um, he says um, uh, to his wife, he, he, um, he asks someone, he dictates a message to his wife. Because you see, he's traveling with his mistress. Uh, his wife is in New York. But he says this, send this message to my wife. Uh, tell my wife that uh, I've done my best in doing my duty. <laughs> I'm traveling with my mistress and my valet back to be reunited with my wife. But tell her, I've lived a pretty good life. I've done my best. And surely, he didn't have to finish this, the idea, but surely I will be welcomed into heaven. People think about works, and they think they will be fine because, on average, I'm better than everyone else. And if there is a God, he will most surely receive me into his heaven because I've been pretty good. I don't kick dogs, I don't cheat on my taxes, not a lot, and, and so on and so forth. And the Catholic Church uh, solidifies human commitment to works. The Council of Trent said, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, meaning nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification, let them be anathema. Let them be accursed. Let them suffer in the fires of hell if they think you can be justified by grace through faith alone and not of works. That's never been repudiated never will be because it's authoritative. But you see, the Bible is so very firm about the fact that that that's wrong. Listen to this, Galatians 2.16. And yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. And we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Can't be more clear than that. And then Romans 3, verse 20 and 28. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. If you're going to be saved, it's the believing touch, you see. It's the believing touch. It's faith in Christ and faith alone in Christ. The Bible is absolutely clear about this. You, if you're not a Christian now, you need to understand this. It's not the work you do that's going to save you. It's not by being a good little boy and a good little girl that you'll go to heaven. Sometimes maybe we Christians tell you that, children, that now be a good little boy, God will be happy. Well, yes, I mean, be a good little boy, but that's not enough to save you. It's not enough for you. It's not enough for any of us. By the works of the law shall 
no flesh be saved. So the, the inevitable attitude of the human heart is wrong. It's not works. You can't earn this. It's just plain wrong. So let me tell you about the exemplary attitude of the hurting woman. Well, verse 43 and 44 says that she could not be healed by anyone. So she comes up behind Jesus and touches the fringe of his garment. Men in those days, uh, Jewish men wore or tassels, a, a sort of a, a blue twisted cord, and it would be uh, at the bottom of their garments. And that was according to the instruction of Numbers 15, Deuteronomy 22, was supposed to remind them about their responsibilities as regards the Word of God. And so did she touch the tassel, or did she touch just the hem? The word that's used here can be translated hem as well. So, so maybe she just touched the hem. We don't totally know for sure, but the point is she just touched them. She just touched his garment, and she was saved. You see, that's the point. The good that was done her was done because she believed, because she trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ. You're saved, you're healed as you trust in Jesus. So uh, let's say, let's say that I... I book a flight to England. I want to go to the conference there, and I want to enjoy this England, you know. And I, I go to Pearson, have my flight booked, and um, get on the plane because I'm really acknowledging the fact that uh, I can't get to England on my own steam. I can't swim and I can't fly. So I need something else. So I step into the plane, and I believe that the plane is a powerful plane, powerful engine, and a wise pilot. I believe that this can get me to heaven, get me to England, get me to the place I want to go. And well, you know, you get on the plane, buckle up, hopefully uh, an aisle seat, and then you, the plane takes off, those shuddering moments, and and then you're off. And you look around, you think, oh. You look at all the people there. You notice that they're not, uh, like, they're not going like this, you know? They're not going like this. Got to keep this, got to keep this plane in the air. Let me just, just keep going. Vigorous, vigorous. Oh, it's water now. I got to keep. Nobody's doing that. They're, you know, they're wrapped themselves in a blanket. They've fallen asleep. Some of them are reading their Kindles. Some of them are drinking apple juice. They're, just, they're not worried about anything. Why is that? Well, because they're in the plane. And the plane will get them there. You know. We see that that's really what faith is like. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And, and the idea is that you believe into Christ. It's almost like you... You know, with the plane, you, you go down that alleyway, and then you, you, step, you step into the plane. And now this plane's going to get me there. Well, it's like that. One writer says, faith for John is an activity which takes men right out of themselves and makes them one with Christ. 
It's not just intellectual assent to the truth, although that's very important. If you deny the deity of Christ, you're not going to be saved. You must believe what the Bible says. But it's not just an intellectual thing. You must, it must be personal and trusting of yourself to Jesus. And you must sort of step into Jesus and this powerful Christ and this wise Savior will take me to glory. Not as a result of any weak, silly efforts of mine, but because of His grace and because of His power. And I believe into Christ, and He looks after it, and He watches over me, and He cares for me, and He brings me to His glory. It's on the basis of His work. It's faith. Ryle says, true faith is but a laying hold of a Savior's hand, leaning on a husband's arm, receiving a physician's medicine. It brings nothing to Christ but a sinful man's soul. It gives nothing, contributes nothing, pays nothing, performs nothing. It only receives and takes and accepts and grasps and embraces the glorious gift of justification which Christ bestows. And that's what Jesus says to her. Ah, your faith has saved you. You believed in the Christ. And that's why you're saved. You've entrusted yourself to me. And that's why you're healed. Oh, that's just salvation by grace through faith in Jesus. Horatius Bonner says, Faith is not a work, nor a merit, nor an effort, but a cessation from all these. The acceptance of what another has done, done completely and done forever. What's well, wonderful, you see, Ryle says that faith, saving faith is the eye of the soul. You look to Jesus, that's just what you do. You look to Jesus and you're saved. Faith is the mouth of the soul. He gives the, the living bread and you eat that and you're saved. Faith is the, the foot of the soul. Uh, you're pursued by the devil and by sin and you're headed for destruction. And the foot of the soul, you run to Jesus. He's the refuge. He's the safe, the safe place and the strong tower. And you come to him and you're, and you're saved. And you see, you look at this woman, you say, oh my, my tremendous example of faith. And you see, it's the, if you're going to be saved, friends, it's the healing from sin that you need. And if that's going to be yours, it, it's the look of faith. It's the reach of faith. It's the eye that turns towards the Lord Jesus and looks to Him for help and for healing and for salvation. And you see, we want, to, we want our children. We want the children here. We want you to, to believe when you're young. You know, we're, we're urging you to believe when you're young. You know all about the Lord Jesus and we're pleading with you to believe while you're still young and trust the Lord Jesus for your salvation. And you see, I, I read something on Facebook today which occasionally you run across something that's not soul-destroying on there and, and it's helpful. And, and I read a, a quote from Burke Parsons and he said this. He says, I pray that, that my kids will have a boring testimony. <laughs> that's really that's brilliant. You want to have a boring testimony. I don't want to hear. I'd rather not hear about how you 
you know, became a drunkard and got into drugs and went to the Himalayas and sat at the feet of some drug-addled brain of some Hindu mystic talking about the, you know, what the secret of life is. You know, if after all that you come to Christ, well, that's fantastic. But I'd love to hear how you can't remember not believing in Jesus. You can't, you can't remember a day when you didn't love the Lord Jesus. Now, we know there was a time, we know there was a moment when you came from death to life, translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's Son. We know that that happened. We just can't place when it was because, I mean, that's all you can remember is loving Christ. That's what we want. That'd be great. And that's why we're pleading with, with young folk to believe in the Lord Jesus right away. I mean, don't, don't wait. Well, so there's the, the believing touch, right? Let me give you one lesson if you're a Christian and if you're a non-Christian. The, the lesson is that you should praise God. Now, if you're a Christian, you praise God because, because God gave you that faith. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, you know, saved by grace through faith and not of works. It's the gift of God. So the extraordinary thing is that, that even though faith is the cessation of works, you couldn't even do that. You know? I mean, you tried to, to do all kinds of stuff, and then you heard you need to believe in Jesus, and, and, and you just stopped all the, all the efforts to, to work your way to heaven. Stop that, but you can't even do that by yourself. You can't generate saving faith from your sinful soul. That had to be a gift. And so if you're a Christian today, you say, oh, yeah, what you're saying is right. And, you know, a little boring because I know all this stuff. But the fact of the matter is, you wouldn't be agreeing with me unless it was given to you. How extraordinary is that? You wouldn't be here saying amen because unless it was given to you by God. Unless he granted you faith. Well, you should praise the Lord for that. Right? And the second thing, if you're not a Christian, you should praise God because there's hope for you. You know, the story in the Old Testament about how these people are dying because of this disease and, and God says, when I raise up this bronze serpent and, and all they have to do is look and they'll be healed. And Jesus says, well, that was a picture of me and I'm going to be lifted up and people who look to me They'll be saved. That's what happened to Spurgeon. Uh, the, the preacher of that day said to him, you need to look to Christ. Just look to him. All the ends of the earth, look to him and you'll be saved. Well, it means there's hope for you. There's salvation for you. One of the hymns we used to sing says, there's life for a look at the Savior. Yes, indeed. And now lastly, and very quickly, because time's running out, uh, the road of peace, because Jesus says to you in verse 48, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Oh, that's tremendous. Go in peace. Now she travels a road of peace. Two things. She walks down a road now at peace with God. At peace with God. And that's it. Every Christian now walks down a road at peace with God. Uh, go in peace. That's the word that all of us hear. Uh, who are Christians. We've heard that from the Lord Jesus Christ. We, we go in peace. We're at peace with God, you and I. At peace with God. And Romans 5.1 says that if you're at peace with God, you have access to God. You can call God Father. He opens Himself up to you. You can come into His presence and you can pray to Him any day of the week and any hour of the day. 
And uh, because you're at peace with God, you, you never fear being separated from God. No condemnation to those who are in Christ. And you sing, when you reach that day, you know, the last day, the day of judgment, the day when everybody appears before Christ, one of our hymns says, well, when I get there, with joy shall I lift up my head. Why is that? Well, because you're forgiven, because you're justified. No dread, no fear, no terror, because you're free. You're forgiven of everything. Extraordinary. You walk down the road full of peace. Let me tell you, let me tell you a story about a rapper. You think, how do you, what do you know about rap music? Next to nothing. I'm, doesn't bother me at all. But, I, but I'll tell you about a man named Travel Coleman, who maybe you've never heard of. I'd never heard of him. Uh, his rapper name was G-Dep, which meant ghetto deputy. This is, I read this stuff. I didn't know this stuff, I guarantee you. So G-Dep. So when he's about 15, before he's into rap, he, he, he tries to rob a man. I think it's about 15. So he tries to rob a man at gunpoint. Doesn't go well, so he ends up shooting him three times, and he, he takes off. But he takes off on his bike. That's how young he is. Well, in his later teens, he gets into rap music, and he becomes, again, I'm told this, never heard him, but uh, he became a very famous rap artist. And, um, but for 17 years, he can't forget what he did. The, the case has gone ice cold. They're not looking for anybody. They, they've, they've filed this away. Nobody's looking for the, the man who shot that man back in 93. But Travel Coleman has not forgotten it. He can't get rid of the guilt. And so he turns himself in. He gets 15 to life. He comes up for parole next year. People said he's crazy, but he had to do it. Why? Because he, he, <laughs> guilt eats away at you. Psychology has not been able to destroy the notion of guilt, try as they did. You, you walk down the road. It's not the same road that that man walked. He walked with the burden. He was like Christian before his conversion, the burden of guilt on his shoulders. But your walk is completely different. Because you're free, you're forgiven, you're justified. And so you're at peace with God, and so that's how you live your life. That's how you walk down the road. She had, she had physical peace because she was healed. She had spiritual peace because she was reconciled to God. She had social peace because now it was public knowledge that, you know, you can hang out with her. What a tremendous blessing, this woman. So she walks down the road now at peace with God. And secondly, she walks down the road now a child of God, at peace with God and a child with God, of God. It's extraordinary. Imagine. Verse 48. Daughter. But if you're a Christian, you're a son, you're a daughter. When I was baptized ooh, a long time ago now, it was the custom in that church to sing, as you come up out of the water, they would sing, we're so glad we're a part of the family of God. Well, that's true of us. We're, 
We're children of the living God. All of us, children of the living God. And uh, we're saved. So we walk down as children of God who have been, well, been, been healed. She was healed completely. And, and that will be the case with us. One day, you'll be healed completely, physically and spiritually. Just, she was healed freely, wasn't she? She had, she had spent all her living at all, but then she comes to Jesus and trusts in him, and she's saved. She's, she's healed freely. And that's what happened to you. You didn't earn that. You earned the opposite, but you, you're saved by grace alone. And she was healed instantly. And that will be your experience. One day, you'll be, oh, you'll see God, and then uh, you'll be perfect. It's quite extraordinary, you know. When I, uh, years ago, I sat in my bed and I read uh, the book of John, and be somewhere between chapter 1 and chapter 21, I was saved. And, and there was a point when you were saved. Maybe you can point to it, maybe you can't. What happens when you're saved? Well, you're, you're alive. You're alive spiritually. You're forgiven of all your sins. Christ now, from that moment on, is with you every step of the way through all of your life. You're adopted into the family of God. You call God Father. You have a relationship with God. Jesus is your elder brother. You're never alone, ever. You're destined for glory. You possess present possession, eternal life. You become a witness to the world. You are now salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You are indwelt by the Spirit of God. This is what happens when you're saved. And all of this takes place instantaneously. You're destined for glory. So when you believe, you're saved. And that's why we plead with you. Come to Christ the way we did. You'll be saved. And uh, the Lord Jesus says, you know what that's like? That's like you go into a field and you find a treasure that makes you rich beyond your wildest imaginations. That's what it's like to be a Christian. Children, young people, that, what it's like to be a Christian. Maybe you think, wish I had a lot of money, then I, I, the stuff I would buy. Incredible. But I'm telling you, when you become a Christian, there's nothing in the world that can tempt you to walk away from Jesus. He is the greatest treasure of all. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for your goodness to us in sending your Son. We thank you for the fact that it is set before us in your word that we must believe in him, and believing in him will be saved. And we thank you that so many of us here this morning are saved, and we pray and we plead with you for those who are not, that you will call them today, draw them to yourself, and save them by your grace, that they might rejoice with us in what it means to know Christ.
We pray in his name. Amen. Well, let's uh, sing in conclusion. Uh, number one.